0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: They're really like pirates hijacking a bot.
2: They're the oldest and most populous organism on the planet. The
3: perfect predator. They have figured out a lot about human biology as well as the biology of everything else they infect.
4: It is life in its simplest possible form.
5: Viruses. In 2020, these tiny parasites see center stage. But viruses don't just cause pandemics. Scientists are beginning to discover how central they are to the balance of our planet. Viruses offer clues to the origins of life as we know it, and provide inspiration and powerful tools for protecting the future of humanity. You're listening to Babbage from Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and today we explore viruses, not just as agents of destruction, but also as lords of creation. Humans like to think of themselves as the ultimate predator. But SARS-CoV-2 has shown that people can also end up as prey. Viruses have caused modern pandemics from COVID-19 to HIV-AIDS to the influenza outbreak of 1918 to 1920, which killed millions more than died in the First World War. Before that, Europeans were helped in their colonization of the Americas by inadvertently bringing over smallpox, measles, and influenza, which annihilated native populations. But the influence of viruses on Earth goes far beyond the tragedies of a single species.
4: A virus is an uber-predator. It's the most stripped-down form of life you could imagine. Jeff Carr is our science editor and the author of the cover story in this week's Economist
5: about the little-known universe of viruses.
4: It exploits other organisms' metabolisms to reproduce. It has no metabolism of its own. It is life in its simplest possible form and how many different viruses are there? That's a very good question, and we don't know the answer. We can say there's going to be at least one and probably several species of every other sort of living organism. We have an estimate of how many viral particles there might be in the world, and it's a very large number indeed. It is a one followed by 31 zeros, 10 to the power of 31.
5: 10 to the 31st power is a big number. Can you put it into perspective for us? I'm on the Copacabana beach in Brazil. It's massive. Is it more or less than the number of grains of
4: sand? I will bet you money at any odds you like that there are more viruses on Earth than there are grains of sand in the Copacabana beach.
5: Wow. So I'll I'll tell Barry Madelow. What are they made out
4: of? The crucial bit is the genetic material, which is surrounded by a protein shell called a capsid. Viruses have seven different ways of organising their genetic material and translating it into new viruses. Some of them have genetic material which is DNA, like humans and mushrooms, in double strands. Some of them have DNA in single strands, which is different from humans and mushrooms, although it's the same molecule. A lot of them have a different molecule called RNA. It's similar to DNA, but it has some small chemical differences. Humans and mushrooms and all those sorts of things use RNA for part of their metabolism. They use it to carry information from the nucleus to the place where proteins are made, genetic information, but they don't store their genes as RNA, whereas lots of viruses do actually store their genes as RNA. Are viruses alive? (laughs) Well, that of course depends on what you mean by alive, but um, one famous virologist called Eckhard Wimmer, when asked uh, whether viruses were dead or alive, replied yes. (laughs) His observation, and probably the best way of looking at viruses, is they're actually virtual organisms. The thing that you see down a microscope, which is called a virion, the virus particle, is actually like a piece of computer code. It's a chemical. It has no metabolism at all it can't do anything but when it gets into an appropriate cell and then it becomes alive and becomes a sort of virus cell which is the living version of the virus turning out new virus particles so it's more like the
5: virus is a process not a thing
4: uh yes but life is a process not a thing i mean five minutes after you've died the same atoms are in your body as five minutes beforehand the structure is still there but you've ceased to be alive because the process Of being alive has gone, and that's the metabolism. So the the thing that viruses are doing is hijacking the metabolism of other organisms. So
5: where do viruses come
4: from? That is a very much debated question. Logically, you'd say there are two ways they can come into existence. One is for a living cell, a single-celled organism, to get simpler and simpler and become a parasite. The other is that genes could escape from a living cell and take on a life of their own. A more interesting question, perhaps, is when did viruses come into existence? They are such a fundamental form of parasite that you would expect them to have started coevally, at the same time as the sort of living organisms we used to. And that probably means they go back to something which is called the RNA world. There are a lot of biologists who think that the very first living organisms used RNA genes and only later did they develop DNA. Some of them may well be left over from that RNA world.
5: So some viruses can trace their lineage farther back than DNA-based
4: life. We don't know that for certain, but it seems extremely likely, yes.
5: As far as anyone can tell, over time, viruses have adapted to attack every organism that exists. And their prey have adapted in turn. From this nihilistic, never-ending competition within and between organisms has emerged the breathtaking complexity of evolution. In the popular imagination, viruses are often portrayed simply as agents of destruction. I asked Jeff Carr if they have been misunderstood.
4: It's certainly not wrong. They're very destructive. Um, Through their destructiveness, if you like, they can serve functions. They are reckoned to be... responsible in the sea for maintaining diversity of plankton. And that's probably because if anything gets too successful, the viruses come along and kill it. Viruses are drivers of evolution and there are several different ways in which viruses are reckoned to affect evolution, some of them quite important.
5: Let's dive deeper into this. How do viruses work as engines of evolution?
4: Well they work in two ways. One is by being evolutionary selective pressures, so anything which an survive in the face of assault and therefore reproduce is going to be preserved. So there is a lot of evolutionary effort, if one can put it in those terms, to protect organisms, to react against viruses, to protect themselves from viral infection. Some people think it has driven some quite big shifts. I referred earlier to the idea that DNA was not the original genetic material. There's a theory that the change was brought about by a virus. A virus underwent this very slight tweak from RNA to DNA, and cells that were adapted to RNA viruses then couldn't attack it. A is the creation of multicellular bodies because multicellular bodies require Cells sometimes to destroy themselves, to sacrifice themselves and not reproduce, but particularly to destroy themselves. That's not a natural thing for a cell to do. But if a cell's been infected by a virus, then killing is a good idea because it'll stop the infection spreading. So some people think that this is the origin of multicellular organisms.
5: So cells are forced to evolve to survive these viral attacks. And what's the second way?
4: The other way that... Viruses promote evolution is by moving genetic material around, and in particular, this happens with things called retroviruses. Those will be familiar to most people in the form of HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Retroviruses reproduce by putting their DNA into the chromosomes in the nuclei of their hosts, and if they integrate the DNA into a cell on the germline, so a sperm cell or an egg cell, then it will pass down the generations and it will just you know, continue to reproduce and it will become part of the genome of the organism involved. Generally speaking, you know, that might be a minor nuisance, but sometimes it could be of great benefit. One of the most famous examples is uh, one of the genes that's involved in making placentas, which allow um, female mammals to give live
1: birth.
5: So if viruses are drivers of evolution, how much have they shaped human development?
1: I really dislike viruses, actually. I'm fascinated by how sneaky they can be.
5: That's David Ennard of the University of Arizona.
1: They're really like pirates hijacking a boat. They get into your cells, they force yourself to do what they need to do in order to uh, multiply more. But I really dislike them because of like, the tremendous suffering that they have caused, and the scars of which you can still see in the genomes. And you could almost say that like, they waste our evolutionary potential because we have to constantly adapt to them instead of adapting to other things.
5: For someone who dislikes viruses, David spends a lot of time with them. Better the devil you know, I guess. The Ennard lab investigates something called Adaptive evolution, how ancient pandemics shaped human development over millennia. He's almost like a criminal investigator, only of prehistoric felonies. CSI virus.
1: It's a very uh, apt analogy. We start on the crime scene where we have these tracks in the form of like signals of adaptation at specific locations in the genome. And then we start following these tracks and see if they take us to a specific virus. So it is very much a collaborative work, a teamwork between evolutionary biologists and virologists to be able to solve these like million years old crimes.
5: That's brilliant. How do you do that?
1: What I do in my work is that I look at all the adaptation that you can detect in human genomes. And the way you do it is that those genomes uh, between different people, they have different mutations, different genetic variants. And from looking at the genealogies, you can tell where in the genome's adaptation occurred. And when you do that, you can see that about a third of this adaptation in human genomes happened at genes that interact with viruses and happened in response to different viruses. Not only can you tell uh, that much adaptation happened in response to viruses, but thanks to the hard work of virologists, we can basically tell which specific families of viruses drove the past adaptation in human genomes and therefore caused ancient epidemics, ancient pandemics that were the selective force that forced this adaptation in the first place.
5: Wow, this is really interesting. So a third, that's a lot. Can you give us some examples?
1: For example, at the time when Neanderthals and modern humans interbred, when the ancestors of Eurasian modern humans migrated outside of Africa, what happened is that Neanderthals had their own uh, specific viruses that were infecting them they infected each other with these like viruses. And what happened is that there was like fast track evolution happening in response to these new viruses. Instead of having to adapt to these new viruses, modern humans didn't have to wait for their own new mutations to happen to adapt. They just used the genetic material from neanderthals that had integrated into their genome because of the interbreeding to adapt faster to these new genes. And if you think about it, the Neanderthals, they poisoned modern humans with these new viruses, but they also provided the antidote in the form of their already adapted genetic material. And this genetic material has survived in Eurasian modern human populations to this day.
5: Viruses have shaped the world and everything that lives in it, down to the human immune system. Coming up, how antiviral defenses now offer new tools against some of the greatest threats to human health.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools.
5: These ancient, ruthless parasites continue to threaten human existence. But humankind is now finding new ways to deal with the viral threat and to exploit it.
3: Well, viruses are actually uh, very clever (laughs) in the sense that they have figured out a lot about human biology as well as the biology of everything else they infect better than anyone. And so humans have a lot to learn from viruses.
5: Jennifer Doudna is a biochemist at the University of California, Berkeley, and director of its Innovative Genomics Institute.
3: And a great example of that is the development of vaccines themselves. Viruses have a lot to teach us about fundamental biology, as well as ways that we can cure disease by harnessing the things that they've figured out about infecting cells and the way that cells can fight back.
5: This is something that Jennifer has discovered at first hand. In 2012, she helped make one of the most monumental discoveries in biology, describing the ability to simply and precisely edit genomes using the CRISPR-Cas9 protein.
3: I think one of the fascinating things about CRISPR-Cas9 is it's actually an antiviral Early versions of genetic engineering used viruses to introduce genetic information into cells, into patients. CRISPR is an adaptive immune system. It allows bacteria to identify viruses and learn about them through their genetic material, and then create a genetic memory of infection that allows those bacteria to fight back and destroy viruses that try to infect the cells again. In a way, it's quite analogous to the way a human immune system works, but big difference in how these systems actually operate, because in CRISPR, this is a system that requires short snippets of viral DNA to be inserted into the bacterial genome. It's a place where the genetic memory is created, and the cells are then able to use that information later to identify viruses that show up in the cell with that same genetic sequence.
5: Now, can you give some concrete examples of how the technology is being used?
3: I think a great example of how CRISPR is being used today is to cure sickle cell disease. This is a very well-known genetic disorder that results from a sequence in the human beta-globin gene. It's a gene that encodes a key protein required for oxygen delivery by red blood cells. And up until now, although this disease could be readily diagnosed, it was impossible to cure it and very difficult to treat it. And now we, we know that CRISPR can be used to change the genetic information in those red blood cells so that patients can be effectively cured of their
5: disease. And it's also being used to develop a more efficient COVID test.
3: Well, it's very, very interesting to me that an antiviral system in bacteria can now be harnessed to do what it does in bacteria, namely detect and report on the presence of viral DNA. And I suspect that within the coming months, we will see everything from laboratory tests that use the CRISPR technology to potentially at-home kits that will allow testing for the presence of the coronavirus.
5: Of course, the obvious question then is, can CRISPR be used to fight viral pandemics?
3: <laughs> it's a tantalizing thought, isn't it, to think that we could take a bacterial antiviral system and turn it against a human virus, especially in the middle of a pandemic. I think the challenge there, honestly, is the challenge of delivery. It's how do we introduce the, the CRISPR proteins and their their associated molecules into cells where that kind of antiviral activity would be necessary and so not a problem that science has yet solved. On the other hand, I think there is a lot of excitement about the potential there and if anything this pandemic is encouraging more research into this kind of system and I think will help us with future pandemic preparedness.
2: next pandemic is already here. By the year 2050, 10 million people per year, that's one person every three seconds, is going to be dying from a superbug infection. And that's going to cause $1 trillion in lost productivity. Antimicrobial resistance, it's a huge problem.
5: Stephanie Strathdee is an epidemiologist at the University of California, San Diego, and directs its new center for innovative phage applications and therapeutics. She's also the author of The Perfect Predator. Her work explores how one of the most potent weapons against antimicrobial resistance may come from harnessing viruses themselves, specifically
2: phage. Bacteria phage are viruses. We call them phage for short. They're the oldest and most populous organism on the planet. They're 100 times smaller than bacteria, and they prey upon bacteria. They're its perfect predator. Phage looks something like alien spiders. They're come kind of in all shapes and sizes but the ones that people identify the most have this icosahedron head and they have these spindly little legs and they attach to a bacterial cell and they drill into it and their DNA goes into the bacterial cell and takes it over and turns it into a phage manufacturing plant. So the bacteria aren't multiplying themselves anymore. And when given the kill signal, these baby phage burst out of the bacterial cell and go on to attack new bacterial cells they only attack the exact specific kind of bacteria that they are matched to. Unlike antibiotics, which kind of have a scorched earth approach to them where they they kill the friendly bacteria too. And we now know that that's not a great thing for human health.
5: So how did you become aware of phage therapy?
2: Phages were discovered 100 years ago by a French Canadian scientist named Félix de Harel. But then Antibiotics came on the scene, and phage were kind of relegated to the back burner. In 2016, my husband was dying from a superbug infection that he acquired while we were traveling, and it was just a nightmare. By the time he was medevaced home, they found out that it was resistant to all antibiotics. He was dying. I mean, it was it was awful. So I went home and I did what anybody would do. I hit the internet and up popped a paper and it had something buried in it called phage therapy. I made a list of phage researchers that were studying his superbug and I approached them cold. And I couldn't believe it, but within 24 hours, Dr. Ryland Young from Texas A&M University wrote back and he said, I'll help you if you send me his bacterial isolate and we'll see if we have any phages that are a match. Wherever you have a lot of bacteria, you have the perfect predator that preys upon them. So the best place to find phage is actually in sewage. So they found four phages from barnyard waste and sewage that were a match for my husband's bacterial infection. Sent it back to us, we had it purified. From my first email to the day we were ready to give phage therapy to my husband, only three weeks had passed. Compare that to an antibiotic that takes 10 to 15 years to develop and a billion dollar price tag or more.
5: So you injected it into your husband. And then what? Give me the TikTok.
2: Well, what happens is an invisible war at the microscopic level. You have the phage that are multiplying as long as they're finding bacteria that they're a match to. Once those bacteria are gone, they're naturally removed by the liver and the spleen. It's the reticuloendothelial system, if to be precise. We started phage therapy on my husband March fifteenth, 2016, And he woke up three days later, lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand. He had a long recovery. He had lost over 100 pounds, all of his muscle mass. He'd been on a ventilator for a couple of months. It it really has been phenomenal.
5: That is extraordinary. So turning to your current research, what potential applications of phage therapy offer the most promise?
2: We've treated a number of, of patients, not just in San Diego, but all over the world. One of the most miraculous cases was the first genetically modified phage cocktail to be used to treat a human infection and a young girl named Isabel Carnell Holdaway who's in the United Kingdom, she had cystic fibrosis, she'd had a double lung transplant, a superbug moved in and was attacking her new lungs, and she was actually in hospice. We were able to work with colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh who found phages that were a match, but they needed to be manipulated in order to be the kind that would kill her superbug. And she left the hospital within a week, and that's how quickly it worked. One of the most interesting elements of phage is that they can actually be synergistic with antibiotics and they can take a failing antibiotic and resurrect it. There's actually been a revitalization of phage therapy in the West. People see, wow, we can inject phage into people not just to kill superbugs, but to carry cancer drugs, vaccines. And also to groom the microbiome, to take out the nasty bacteria and leave the friendly ones behind. There's a whole new area of precision medicine, nanomedicine that involves phage.
5: The study of phage is in turn fueling the progress of Jennifer Doudna's work in genetic engineering. In July, her team in collaboration with the Jill Banfield Lab announced the discovery of a new and even more precise version of CRISPR.
3: It was found that many of these phage have their own CRISPR systems they carry around. And not surprisingly, because phage are very small, they have small genomes, they carry a uniquely tiny version of CRISPR that allows them to, we think, fight other viruses and potentially even influence the genetic activities of their, their host cells. And so in this case, studying this system has allowed us to harness a very tiny version of a CRISPR protein that we think will be exciting for uh, applications in the future because it is quite small and potentially easier to get it into cells
5: Information, which for billions of years has only ever come into its own within infected cells, can now be inspected on computer screens and modified at will. This is a landmark change in the history of viruses and people, and the pandemic is now supercharging research into viruses.
3: Most of the colleagues that I talk to now tell me that they have some kind of COVID-related research going on in their own laboratory. I think that's a fascinating thing. Most of us... We're not working on anything related to viruses at all before uh, the current situation. And I think that that's extraordinary. Secondly, I think that there's a fascinating shift going on in just the way that scientific research is communicated and the way that uh, non-scientists perceive scientists themselves as well as scientific data. I wonder whether we're really living through the beginning of a effectively another sort of scientific revolution where we're going to see that just as in the 1970s there was a technology revolution and many people began to use computers and other kinds of electronic devices. They became just part of life as we know it. And I wonder if that will happen now with science and especially biological science.
5: While scientists don't yet have the tools to end this pandemic, their arsenal is increasing all the time. Here's David Ennard again.
1: The more we study ancient viral epidemics through the lens of human genomes, the more we can learn about potential future viral threats that are lurking around in like animal reservoirs around us. And the better we can predict potentially where viral threats could come from. And this is a very important word because the more human activities and human populations disturb wildlife around them, the more frequent these epidemics and potentially pandemics are going to be. It's really a case where we are at war and we absolutely need to better know the enemy if we want to have a fighting chance.
5: But as Stephanie's draft notes, if this is a war, we shouldn't be too quick to take sides.
2: Over time, we've learned that all bacteria aren't dangerous, some are friendly. I was trained as an AIDS epidemiologist, and I used to think that all viruses were dangerous, but now I realize that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Viruses are naturally occurring, they're populous in nature. If we harness their potential, We'll be able to actually take on the superbug crisis in a brand new way.
5: So, is a world without viruses desirable, even if it were possible? I asked Jeff Carr, our science editor, who set us off on this investigation.
4: I said it isn't possible. Um, desirable? The world without viruses is not desirable. No, that would change the ecology of the world in some ways which we know about it and in a lot of ways which we don't know about it because I think something that needs to be emphasised is our knowledge of viruses is approximately squidly dead. Virology started as a study of pathogens only in the past two or maybe three decades have we really started to realise how ubiquitous and how important viruses are as biological agents. So it's the old question about the mosquitoes. If you you ask somebody, would you like to get rid of all mosquitoes? The instant answer is yes. But if you start to think about the consequence of getting rid of mosquitoes, you'd realise that actually bad things would happen if you did that. There are specific viruses we would love to get rid of and we'll probably have the technology to do that at some point. Viruses as a whole, no, we have to learn to live with them. You know, they are regulators of the ecosystem and things would be different and possibly dangerously different if they didn't exist.
5: Jeff Carr, thank you very much.
4: And thank you, Ken.
5: Just as they cause destruction, Viruses are also a source of richness and change. They spur evolution. They may have been responsible for the appearance of complex multicellular life and the shift to DNA as the preferred genetic material. The diversity of life rests on viruses, and by understanding them better, we can protect ourselves and future generations. That's all for this episode of Babbage. Our thanks to Jennifer Doudna, Stephanie Srafty, David Enard, and, of course, Jeff Carr. You can read his essay in full in the latest issue of The Economist. And if you're not yet a subscriber, you should be. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. The link is in the show notes. And one more thing, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Cuquier, and in London... This is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yoquiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.